Hey guys, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. The key word here on this interview is OBH. I guess the key letters. OBH, that stands for the Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Council. That is an association, a group of outdoor behavioral healthcare programs that come together. I'm a part of this association, and that's where I met all the people that I'm interviewing on this podcast. Anyway, we come together twice, three times a year. We have long meetings. We're pooling our research. We're basically coming together and um, working on best practices. We're talking about um, you know, research and, and what we're doing as an industry to be better and to get the word out there for what it is that we do. That's where Dr. Mike Gass and Dr. Anita Tucker come in and also Derek Daly, who I interview. Um, in this interview. So Mike is a, he's a professor in outdoor education program in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of New Hampshire. He received his PhD in experiential education from the University of Colorado at Boulder and completed his postdoctoral studies in marriage and family therapy. Mike is the current director of the Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Center, obhcenter.org. He also serves as the director of the NATSAP Research Database Network. So OBH Center works with the OBH Council, and Mike is the director of that, and they they take all of our research, crunch the numbers, and make sure it's legit, and put out a lot of great uh, writings and data and presentations on what we're doing. Um, Dr. Anita Tucker is the Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of New Hampshire, where she's the co-coordinator of UNH's dual master's program in social work and kinesiology outdoor education. Uh, Anita received her MSW from the University of Michigan in 1997 and her PhD in social work from Boston College in 2006. She holds two clinical social work licenses in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and has over 10 years of experience working with youth in clinical settings who use adventure and wilderness experiences for therapeutic purposes. So those are our interviewees. Um, and then we've got Derek, Derek Daly. He's kind of co-hosting with me today, which is the first time we've ever done that. And um, Derek is the, the co-founder of Legacy Outdoor Adventures, where he works as a substance abuse counselor and, and does some outreach with them. He also founded the LOA Fund, which is a nonprofit supporting mental health and addiction treatment. He also founded the You Are Awesome campaign. And this is a positive message campaign designed to promote compassion and kindness and gratitude facilitated at high schools, universities, and at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, he's the marketing chair at the OBH Council, and I serve on that uh, committee with him. So we, we get to have a lot of fun talking about how to get the word out there on wilderness adventure therapy, outdoor behavioral health, and everything that we're doing and um, this is the nuts and bolts of, of behind the work that we do and what really validates and gives credibility to the work. We know it works because we see it, but the research is backing up what we're doing, and that's why it's pretty exciting. So thanks for joining. I hope you get a lot out of it. And as always, come back next time. Thank you. Hey, guys. Uh, welcome to my podcast. We've got Anita Tucker. Uh, Derek Daly and Mike Gass here. Derek's going to co-host with me. How's everybody doing? Great. Good, good. Right. Good to be here. Doing good. 
All right, so I'm in Costa Rica, Derek's in Utah, Anita and Mike are in New Hampshire, and uh, the, the magic of technology, uh, we hope everything works out and uh, goes smoothly. Um, just to jump in, I, you know, Anita and Mike, obviously I know you guys through OBH, and, um, but I, I don't know your background on why you're both so passionate about what we're doing and the research for wilderness and adventure therapy. Maybe you guys could just take a second and talk about personally why you're excited about this research and where you believe it's going. Well, I think um, the whole thrust of what we're doing is we're trying to make things better for people. And there's, I was just in Washington, D.C. speaking to some Congress people. And I said to them, I said, it would be nice if there was no need to have the Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Council if things were resolved, but there is a need. And the purpose of the Outdoor Behavioral Center is to support uh, evidence-based practices and best practices for helping what is largely becoming an epidemic, uh, mental health and substance abuse issues in our society. And I believe that this is something to help us resolve many issues that has not worked in the past for many of these young people. Mike, do you have a specific background in outdoor, in the outdoor industry and in nature yourself that really drew you to this? Yes. Um, I, back in 1979, I was working at a group home. And uh, it's a long story, but uh, I basically had a couple of incidences over the weekend with my young charges. And I was called to the director's office that Monday morning and he was on the phone with the mayor and the mayor, he hung up the phone. And he says, that was the mayor on the phone. And he says, if we have another weekend like that, we'll lose our license to operate. And he looked out in the uh, parking lot and I was wondering what he was doing. He said, do you see that van right there? And he, and I said, yes. I said, you do some of that outdoor stuff, don't you? I said, yes. <laughs> and he got a puzzled look at his face in my face to him. And he says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take that van and take your nine young men and leave on Friday afternoon and come back Monday morning and do that for the next 10 weeks. Because if we have another incident like this weekend, which we had, we'll lose our license to operate. So my first kind of exposure to wilderness therapy, adventure therapy was really kind of what I call divergent therapy, just doing something to keep them away from doing the problems there. But I learned from a lot from those young men about uh, what was going on in their lives and how the outdoors could be have a curative factor for them. And so that influenced, I think, a lot of what I do today, as well as what I went to get with training. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, um, educational researcher, outdoors person, but realistically, I'm combining all I've learned from those young men into therapeutic interventions to make those stronger and face the uh, growing realities that our society has right now. I was one year old when you did that, Mike. That's pretty cool. <laughs> At least you were born. When I say that to a lot of people, half the crowd isn't born yet. <laughs> Thanks nine. a lot, man. Yeah, nine. what about you, Anita? Um, my, my story is a, is a very, um, non-parallel 
circular story. I uh, grew up with my grandmother on my mother's side in the Green Mountains of Vermont, hiking and being outdoors, and then my grandmother on my dad's side on the lakes of Maine. So the women in my life were always strong outdoors enthusiasts, enthusiasts. So that really gave me my love for the outdoors. And then I went to Dartmouth College and they had a strong outdoors club. But really, I think um, what happened for me is that in my um, 20s, I'd always wanted to go on an Outward Bound or Knowles course, but I never could afford it. And I'd been introduced to some of the concepts, you know, clearly Dartmouth is where Outward Bound USA, like, I mean, Outward Bound started in New England before it moved. So it was, on, you know, they should be on the campus and a lot of rich history. But at the time, I ended up on a Knowles course um, and... Uh, I was 25 and self-pay, and it was pretty crazy that I was the same age as my instructors. But I did a 28 backcountry course in the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, and it really changed my life. I just realized that I wanted to work in the outdoors. I wasn't sure how I was going to do that, um, but I was starting my master's in social work at the University of Michigan, and uh, one of my professors, um, Tony Alvarez, who actually teaches for Mike and I at UNH now. Mm. Uh, Tony. He, yeah, Tony was my professor, and he, I was in a school social work class, and he had me do all these crazy activities with, like, milk crates and two-by-fours, and we had to cross from, like, point A to point B without touching the carpet and using all these tools he gave you and talking about what tools you bring, and it was just, you know, I was like, well, this guy's crazy. Um, and I ended up falling in love with the experiential piece of the therapy, um, so he introduced me to that, and then I, 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 I basically had to make my own. I had to make my own path. And so I, I, I went and worked for um, a lovely gentleman at a therapeutic summer camp in Massachusetts. And he suggested I go to Project Adventure and get some training because I already had the therapeutic training because I was getting my master's. So I went to Project Adventure um, and worked for that camp for a couple of summers, running their challenge course, working with a variety of really challenging youth. And the third summer I ended up running their um, expedition program and started my doctorate and then realized I really wanted to focus this in my doctorate. And then I drove to Project Adventure and knocked on their door and said, I want to work for you, but I'm not going to um, count carabiners or um, <laughs> coil rope. You know, I have my MSW. And so this is back in 98. And um, uh, Jim Scholl, uh, at the time, he wrote um, Islands of Healing and Exploring Islands of Healing, which along with Dr. Gass are two of the pretty much foundational textbooks in the field of adventure and wilderness therapy. And uh, he was my mentor and um, he and I got to know each other really well. And they were writing that book, Exploring Islands. And he was a good friend of, of this guy called Lee Gillis, who, you know, I didn't know who Lee Gillis was. This is back in 1998. And I calling Lee Gillis and trying to, he was trying to build a database of dissertations on adventure therapy back then. Um, and so it just, and just, Jim's son had worked for this organization that did full-time adventure work and I got introduced to the organization and five years later I was running that organization and uh, at that point I'd known Mike. Mike would come do in-service trainings and Tony Alvarez would fly out because we've been friends for years. He would come do trainings for my, my staff. So my, my clinical work was all uh, honestly community-based work, working with kids involved in foster care, kids living in residential treatment. Um, kids involved in the juvenile justice system. Um, and so that kind of springboarded me um, into, I ended up leaving that job, working part-time and then working for Outward Bound for a while. Don't know why, I just decided it would be a good idea. So I worked for Thompson Island again, that focused Thompson Island Outward Bound School focuses on urban youth. And so there's a lot of 
focus on kind of bringing wilderness to those that have less, less access to it, really with my social work roots. Um, when I finished my doctorate, I came to UNH, and that's when Mike and I had the epiphany that, hey, maybe we should start the master's program and uh, use the social work and the outdoor ed to really create a cross-trained, collaborative student um, because I had to kind of go figure out like on my woofer I paid for my, my wilderness first responder on my own I walked up to Project Adventure like honestly cold called them um, I had a nice guy who paid for some of my workshops you know I had to reach out to find mentors I just decided to work for our band because that's what I wanted to do so my, my path is kind of crazy but I pretty much had to make it because there was no clear path and I think in my work with Mike and his relationship with Keith Russell and with Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare, I uh, was a pretty big skeptic of, of wilderness. Um, I kind of uh, was stuck in the same mindset that, you know, this is, this is white men, this is for those who have, how can this be really effective? You know, what about everyone in the community who doesn't have access? I mean, I was a skeptic, and I always say to folks, if you can make Dr. Tucker believe in outdoor behavioral health care, you can make anyone. Just because I had come from this community-based, very social justice-focused um, spectrum and kind of paradigm. And I really, over the past five years, um, have wanted to be a, a really uh, an informed consumer of what I was doing. So... I have been to all these programs. I have visited programs. I've gone into the field. I've met clients. I send students to intern there. I visit my students who are on internships there um, so that I really can see firsthand, not only anecdotally, but qualitatively what's going on um, and put a face and an understanding behind the research that we do. Um, and so I'm really passionate about it, but it goes full circle because my passion really is what I was talking about is that we want to really deal with the crisis of mental health that we have for folks. And we feel like wilderness is one a part of that, that continuum of care. Um, and so those, those youth that I worked with in my old days in the 90s, it would have been great if I could have sent them to OBH. And if we can get increase our insurance funding and show what OBH does is effective, because we know it is, if we can keep that going, then we'll give access to those who really need it, regardless of financial constraints. So... Um, that passion, that social justice really has come full circle, I think, in my professional career that I'm really doing this for the greater good of, of kids in need and young adults in need. That's awesome. Thank you. So, okay, so Mike and Anita, can you help? So, so Derek and I represent the OVH Council, right? We're, we're, we, we work for and run these adventure and wilderness therapy programs. That's what the OVH Council is. You two represent the OVH Center and you're the directors there what is can you just like walk through for people that don't know what your relationship is with the obh council and how you came to be there like you're third party people you are not with us but but you're helping us and and you're doing research and and that's an important distinction um to make and i want you guys to walk us through why that's important i think it's important to understand that we are representing the field and oh, the OBH council is just one element of the field. Um, we have a group of nine, what has been termed research scientists that work independently and then sometimes work collaboratively. Um, it's like having a, a football team and where you take the best people for the certain situations and choose those individuals to 
work on a research project. So Keith Russell may work with um, Keith Russell may work with Lee Gillis on one project, then he may work with Joanna Bettman for another one. And so we kind of work together as a collaborative to to push the field ahead of outdoor behavioral health care. And we're very we want to be very transparent in all the practices that we do that our funding comes primarily from a variety of sources. And our purpose is to address universal problems and a benefit to society as a whole. And we want to conduct all of our operations openly, honestly, objectively, and responsibly. And we disclose any colleagues or students that we work with. So um, any conflict of interest there is either stated or non-existent. But the purpose uh, is the mission of the statement is to have a, such a strong effect on so society and the issues facing mental health and substance abuse clients that we actually see a change in by the year 2020. That's the mission. Using outdoor behavioral health, right? Yeah. That, 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 that that is a great answer to what you guys described earlier as an epidemic, right? Like this is, this is groundbreaking stuff that we're sitting on. And although it's been around for, you know, 30, 40 years, and it's definitely growing right now, I think, I think we're still very much on the front end of what this is. I mean, Derek and, and I talk about this all the time. You sit on an airplane and people say, what do you do? Wilderness therapy. And nobody knows. No one knows what wilderness or adventure therapy is. And you, you end up in a really long, fascinating conversation with people saying, I, I had never heard of that before. I have a cousin that could have used it, a nephew or an uncle. And, you know, and, and I think that's what we're all really all about, right? Is like awareness and, and making this, getting this to a point where people know what it is and, and use it, right? And there's a lot of obstacles in the way. So I, I see you guys as really key to that process in, in terms of providing research, right? It's important. Yeah, it's important to understand the backdrop of what we're looking at because 10 to 20% of all adolescents will have some mental health incident in their time of adolescence. And if you look at the youth that are involved with the court system, over two thirds of them have some type of mental health issue. And suicide is the third leading cause of death for adolescents. And 500,000 to a million adolescents will experience some type of suicidal ideation uh, in their time of being adolescent. So it's not like this is a rarity. It's, it's an epidemic that's happening in our society and we're all looking for the best answer. It's a big deal, right? And so we're looking at, um, you know, medication, traditional therapy, and, you know, kind of the initial go-tos for a lot of people. And then we get into outdoor behavioral health, which is us. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where people start going, what? you guys do that? Does it work? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's where the conversation usually goes. I'm sure you're all used to this conversation. And so where do you go from there? Where do we go? Where do you go in terms of that conversation? Does it work? Well, I also, I want to just backtrack one thing about the OBH Center. I think that the other mission of it is to instill the importance of research across the field. So I think that we try to, you know, walk our talk in that we really believe that, you know, doing good research, um, anecdotally, we can talk forever, 
which is what you're talking about, Andrew, that, yeah, it works. I see it. But, you know, how do we back that up with both qualitative and quantitative findings to say that it works? And I think one of the cool things about the OVH Center is that we have, we work with students who, a lot of them just left the field being field guides or um, working at Outward Bound or Knowles or at therapeutic, wilderness, uh, therapeutic boarding schools doing adventure-based stuff. And they're the, they're the future of they're the future practitioner and, and they're guiding the research as well. And, and we're instilling in them the importance of research and they're going to be able to leave and be critical consumers of research and really lead the programs they end up at in their research. So I think the piece about um, us serving the field is true. It's kind of a mission of ours to give service back to the field so that, um, you know, Mike and I aren't needed and the next generation and then that generation can really guide the field to where it needs to go. So I, I see the OVH Center as a larger mission, and and uh, and that that independence is really important um, in terms of you know what students feel like are up and pressing needs, and and we a lot of the uh, one good story is that um, uh, the use of um, transport. We've done a lot of research on that, showing that um, regardless how kids come to treatment, they do just just as well. Um, and that came out of a, a graduate student who worked for a transport company, and he said he did an amazing job, and um, he felt really challenged by people saying, oh, that's so bad, and the, the misconception of what transport really is um, when a good transport process or experience is coupled with a quality OBH program, that can really instill amazing change in youth, and um, felt he was part of that process and he brought those kids and they were ready to change when they got to program so that whole line of research really came out of these young professionals who come in not only for our school but other research scientists have grad students who really are interested in questions and I think that's that's the beauty of the OBH Center and formalizing a way that we can um, support you know the young professionals in our field um, whether they're UNH students or other students or even just young practitioners at other programs who really are interested in research, how can we best support them um, through the center when they might not have the resources at their organization? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, and just to clarify, transporting, right, is, is, you know, for those that may not know, you know, um, it's not uncommon for an adolescent to be in such a, you know, difficult situation that the, a family will hire a company to come in and, and and actually take people to the program. Um, and it's one of the big criticisms of the industry. And I think I agree with you guys that, you know, the research and even in conversations I've had with a lot of clients, they're like, how, you know, it, it's kind of what had to be. And it, it's, you know, it's something that critics really like to point out. And I think it's really misguided. Um, so I, that, that research is awesome. So I'm really, I'm really happy to see that we're getting that stuff come out. What were you going to say, Anita? Well, Dr. Norton has a story about how she was very long time ago kind of talking about, and she's one of our research scientists, talking about her, you know, questioning of transport. And this mother and this youth who were listening to her speak came up after her and just said, I just want to let you know, the daughter said to Dr. Norton, I just want to let you know if I wasn't transported to a program, I'd be dead right now. It saved my life. And I think mm -hmm. that um, it's easy to see the, yeah. you can see the bad in everything. And I think, um, anything done poorly is detrimental. Wilderness done poorly is detrimental. You know what I mean? So um, I think it's easy to see that the, the, what could be the, the bad side when without really truly knowing what you're talking about and digging deep. And so we really try to dig deep into that practice to understand it better, to really, to really move forward the field and 
you know, move past that question. Well, I think it yeah, makes a lot of sense, you know, looking at the, looking at the research is, is motivation for change necessary for positive and the research that Joanna Bettman did and Keith Russell and uh, somebody else did on how substance abuse recovery is readiness for change. And uh, you remember that one? I think that it makes perfect sense. When I was younger, you know, I traveled around and I had the opportunity to visit some different cultures and witness these rites of passage experiences in different cultures and, and African, I had this concept of what it meant uh, to go on a rites of passage experience. And I pictured these young, brave warriors, like going young kids, you know, and what I found was I remember being in Africa and they were like terrified and the community and the families was pushing them. And that's what happens in our industry is we get these teenagers and we get these young adults. And oftentimes it's after a period of dysfunction where they're struggling and the family saying, no more. Like you need to go on this journey. We're going to push you. We're going to support you on this. And, and that's just like a traditional rights passage. You get pushed. And uh, as a, somebody who's in, on, in, on the ground delivering this stuff, I can see it work, right? They don't have to show up with investment and motivation. But, you know, in the wilderness, in that context, what does happen is you start building relationships. And, and empathy, and then, and then you see that investment and that motivation start to show up. Definitely. I, in one of my interviews uh, with Marley Meltzer uh, a couple episodes back, she talks about that process and getting transported, and I pushed her hard on it and said, were you really upset? Did it piss you off? And she said, she said I got it. I got it. I was unhealthy. I needed, I needed the support. I, I wasn't about to up and do it on my own, and that was the problem is that I wasn't going to do it on my own. And, and so I think that that's something I'm really excited to see that there's some great research helping, helping people understand that because I know that's, that can be hard for families to wrap their head around when they end up in this difficult situation. So. And I so, think it's, so, interesting, it's more interesting around the motivation for change, right? Like the transports themselves, like, okay, that's one part of it, but the, the but, but what it is is like they, clients or the students are young they what they don't have to say hey i want this i'm ready to go to get, to receive the benefits is what i'm what i'm reading in this research too yeah so so when you guys are on an airplane mike and anita and and derek too because i'll always love your input on this stuff what someone says does does it work what's What's, what's your response? What's the research response in layman's terms in a way that that person sitting next to you is going to go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool? It, it depends and it can is the response I give them. And what we're learning is we're learning what factors are bringing, bringing about change by using the wilderness and how to use the wilderness in a certain way and manner. Okay, so it depends on what? A variety of factors. One, it, one is the alliance, the therapeutic alliance built between the client and the therapist. One of the strongest predictors of change is the level of how strong that alliance is, and that's where the field guides play such an incredibly important role in the change process, because they're in working with these um, adolescents 24/7, and that guided by the therapist can bring about functional change. Um, I think what Anita says is that anything that has the power to help also has the power to hurt if done in an inappropriate way. So many of the boot camp type of yell in your face, threatening, 
deception, all of those techniques are just incredibly harmful in those practices. Um, I, I, one of the interesting factors, Peter Greenwood in 2006 calculated that for every dollar we spent on scared straight programs, it took us $203 to rectify and to change. Wow. And are those programs still out there? Oh, yes. Okay. That's too bad. So, so therapist and guide relationship being one of the key elements to change. Mm -hmm. What else? What other things are contributing? Another one that is, is just so fascinating to work with is the idea that instead of just talking the talk, we walk and talk the talk. So it, the therapeutic process becomes multidimensional. Not only are you using one kind of medium, the speaking medium, to bring about change, you're using speech and movement and emotion and affective type of experiences in the group, all to support the processes of what they're looking at. And I think that multimodal type of process brings about incredible pieces. The other thing is that- Vicarious learning. Yeah. The other part that is, there is just the positive perspective of um, the wilderness and solution-oriented abilities. And by basically looking for solutions rather at problems to solve problems really takes the focus off dysfunction and off of the labeling of the person and allows the person to look at those times where there's strength based in their focus and successful resolution of issues that are done in the wilderness or in outdoor community based settings can lead towards successful resolution of the dysfunctional patterns that the adolescent is facing. Resolvable conflict, reciprocity, true self versus social self. So, so what's going on, what's not working in traditional therapy for these clients, for these young people? I think, I mean, I think uh, listening to Dr. Gass talk about the theoretical kind of reasonings for change, I think um, when you are involved with a client and you give them something to do, whether that's climbing or backpacking or kayaking or canoeing or biking, which I know Derek loves to bike, um, we inevitably in our lives show up as our true selves. And so if I really have a hard time communicating and you put me in a canoe with somebody and I'm at conflict, with that person in my group, my canoe might do circles. I could go to my clinician as an adolescent and say, I'm really fighting with this kid in my homeroom class. We keep going back and forth about this one issue. And as a clinician in a room, I haven't seen this. I'm really not sure. I'm trying to, as best as possible, imagine in my, in my mind what that interaction would look like, how that would go down. Whereas when I'm with them in the wilderness, or outside on these, or even just doing office-based initiatives that are adventure-based, in the moment, um, you see where the strengths of a client are, what they're doing well, and exactly what's catching them up. Um, and you can stop and be like, I'm noticing every time you talk to John, um, your face, your voice, the sound of your voice increases, your face gets red, it looks like your veins are, what's going, why is he, it looks like he's triggering you, what's going on for you in that moment? 
And so this idea that you can see, smell, taste, hear what's going on um, is very different than traditional talk therapy. Um, and in that moment, you can also correct action. You know, I'm noticing that, have you ever thought about in that moment, have you ever thought about to use those mindfulness techniques we've been talking about? And next time you're doing a group problem solving and this one kid who seems to trigger you, can you try those for me next time? Um, and so there's this way of, of, of being in the moment, you can stop the action, you can notice in the action, you can guide the learning. Um, and then the key to that is the process of the learning and talking about, so when you're home with mom and dad and you're getting really frustrated in it, you can hear your voice rising and you can feel your blood pressure going because they've, something about what they've done has really made you upset. You know, what can you do to calm yourself first and then engage in the conversation, conversation. not yelling and fighting? And, and that's the real beauty of kind of that, that activity-based intervention is that we can see it. We experience it with them. We're not having to reconstruct it in our mind based on retrospective recreating of something that already happened in the past. Um, it's just a beautiful thing, I feel like. Um, yeah. And, and building on what Anita says is that just the natural consequences of the outdoor behavioral experience a statement I like to say is the body doesn't lie. When you act, you're not lying with your body. And if you don't set up your tarp, which is a common thing, and it rains, you get wet. You have the same consequences. And everyone in the group is treated in the same way. Well, yeah, I would, I would say, too, just to go back a little bit on the question, I like the question of, like, what well, you're on a plane, and how do you answer that? And one of the things I realize, and I've talked with Mike and Anita about this before, is as an industry, wilderness therapy, we've kind of been on the defensive for a long time, like really trying to explain. And, and if I, I, I look for those opportunities to talk about this, and it's, and it's becoming, in, with, all, with all the researchers out there, led by Mike and Anita, uh, it's, it's becoming easier and easier to have that conversation about the research and point to this stuff. And it's exciting to see where we're going, but I'm also I love that opportunity to just flip the question on them. And you guys know my response. I know you've heard it is, you know, why are we still doing couch. therapy? Why? Yeah. Why are we still doing therapy on a couch and just flip it and let them think about it in a different context and, and really take them through a visualization picture, a young picture, a 13 year old girl who's got anxiety and depression and she's coming into a couch and she's sitting there like visualize that in your mind. Now picture that same good therapist doing good therapy, building Alliance. And now you're in this wilderness environment. You know, it's not a stretch, you know, the analogy or metaphor I like to use often we love metaphors in the wilderness is that, you know, back in the eighties, they did, they, this, uh, the, they were doing a lot of research on um, hydration with uh, Gatorade and what hydrates you. And they put all this money into this. In fact, I just saw some three months ago that where they were researching this. And what they found out is, uh, you know, some, some surprising things like coffee does hydrate you, you know, you can, you just drink coffee, you get hydrated. But they also found that water, water was very effective at hydrating you. I think that that's what I think, I don't know about you guys, but I see reflected all over everywhere I look as I scroll down my social media feed or I'm out traveling around. I see society. I see my family members, people who are outside OBH who are looking more and more to nature and looking more and more to disconnecting 
and getting out in nature and having these experiences, I think it's exciting time because I think that what I'm finding is it's starting to actually get a little easier to have these conversations around what we, what we do and people are more intuitively saying, yeah, you know, and uh, because it makes sense. Right. And anybody who's, you know, taken a walk in the woods or been anxious and stressed and spent any time, like just bring them back to that experience. And they're going to be like, yeah, like that makes sense. And the best thing we can do to communicate like how effective this is, is without question is taking people like, like when I hear Anita school, a story about uh, her early days of working this and having those experiences, like having those personal experiences is without a doubt, like the best way to, to share and, 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 and sell people on the power of, of this work. Yeah, I, I, that's definitely the, the background for me, right? You know, just even as a 14-year-old kid, I had a profound experience in the outdoors that, that, that made me want to do more of it and take people to the outdoors and, and like, facilitate it. And, and it, it started then for me, really. And, and it, um, you know, I think for us that are on this call, of course, we you know, we're all doing this, right? We're pretty excited about it. And it's, we've all gradually seen the change and impact it can have in our lives. I, I feel like, I feel like, and, and this might be bold and, and that's where I'd love like Anita and Mike to jump in. Are we sitting on this magic pill of like, that's what I feel like, right? We talk about suicide being up. We talk about depression and anxiety and we're seeing it in our own families and our friends and our neighborhoods and in our clients, especially. Right. And I feel like there's this almost frustration with guys, it's working. The outdoors works. And, um, you know, we, we see a lot of over medication We're we're seeing a lot of just different approaches and I'm not, I'm not saying meds don't work, but, like, are we really sitting on the future of, of the way of an effective and, and powerful way to treat people? And what does that look like? I know there's a lot in that question, but I'd, I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on that. I, I think no. I think yes and no. I think that the ma- it isn't a magic pill. It might be um, a multivitamin, right? So in, in the multivitamin, you have A, B, C, D, vitamin E you know, some riboflavin, which is a B derivative, maybe some folate and maybe some calcium. <laughs> because, so as we love metaphors, right? I think wilderness therapy or OBH as an intervention, one of the roles is the wilderness, but, but the magic pill is that multivitamin perspective of all the additional pieces. So I think being out in the na- being out in nature does decrease your blood pressure and all that stuff. So I think being out in nature is great. I think for stress. Um, but what what we're thinking about is when stress becomes so toxic that you're not functioning appropriately. I think you need more than just to go outdoors. There has mm-hmm. to be reflection of the outdoors. There has to be some sort of um, and that maybe. If, and for some people, right, some people join AA and they journal and they're sober and that's enough. But not all people can do that. They do that and they go to clinician and they have meat. So, so I think that multivitamin might be a little bit of a better metaphor in that it's multiple pieces. Like what's our vitamin A we need? What's the B? What cup shows up as the C? Um, you know, what's our calcium that builds us strong bones? Is that the physical putting that backpack on and walking? You know what I mean? Um, but if you were walking with a group of people you absolutely hate and you have no connection, are you more focused on that than the, than the, 
the climb you just had. And, and you think about trauma survivors. I mean, Denise Mitten just did a great article for Outdoor Outside. Um, and I, I disagree with some of the authors because they kind of misspoke around wilderness being, you know, to push, push, push. Um, and I, I reached out to Denise and tried to reach out to the author. Me and Neil are thinking about inviting her to, to Park City in that um, those folks that are trauma-informed, they meet the group where the group is. And sometimes you only walk a mile or two in one day because that's as far as the group can go. It's not that we have to, we have to do 10 miles and there's flexibility in that. And I think that's from an old boot camp perspective. And I found that creeping into modern articles, you know, common articles. I love the articles focused on trauma and how adventure can really work well to um, adventure wilderness can work well to heal trauma, especially in women. Um, but there was this one sentence that the outdoor, um, the outdoor magazine online uh, writer put in that I disagreed with. And she did kind of make us in that old purview, right? So it's still out there. And I think our job is to kind of educate around that um, because it's multi-tiered. There's lots of tiers to what we do. Um, but yeah, wilderness is one piece, I feel. Yeah, I want to back up what Anita said is that we're, we're beginning more and more what I call prescriptive. And the, the evidence that I um, have seen of that is that the questions that we are being asked as a field have changed. Ten, ten years ago, the big question was, was it safe? Is it safe to do this? And no longer do people ask that question. I, it's a rarity. It's unbelievable how rare it is that people ask that question anymore because we have the data out there and it's been well-researched starting with Keith Russell in the early 2000s up until now, we've been pretty meticulous in doing watching risk management and it's safer to be on these experiences than for the adolescent to be at home. So we've turned that question 180 degrees to the point that the question really doesn't get asked anymore. We still are vigilant in watching that, but it's turning more towards questions about saying around dosage saying how much of nature, how much of challenging experiences, how much of group work. And that's something that Keith Russell and Lee Gillis have done really well with the adventure therapy scale to uh, try and mirror out what is the right dosage for clients. And I think by us asking those types of intermediate level questions, it, start, it shows the field's growth as well as the field's effectiveness in defining itself. So what are some of those dosage uh, findings that are interesting and worthy of mention? Well, I think a big question is um, how, how much does nature play in the process? Um, through several studies, we have just by putting an adolescent in the woods and just having them live in the woods doesn't produce change. But how they're put into the woods and what they do when they're there such as mindfulness type of work and other factors that's where the real change is happening and that's what we need to that's what we are focusing on right now and that's what i think is going to lead the day in the future that so intention is everything yeah and challenge is a piece you know so they're finding level of challenge so um uh Dr. Gillis and Dr. Russell are doing a great job of, of looking at those adventure therapy experience scale, using that to connect that with um, outcomes. And, and challenges play a role. So that idea that we, you, 
being in the wilderness is one thing, but I think also being challenged that could be physically or emotionally, but that challenge, you know, adventure therapy wilderness is a part of the larger field of adventure therapy. One of the things that the theoretical construct is we provide challenging experiences to clients, usually that have an activity or adventure based components that appear impossible, but are very possible. Right. And we build, we sequence them in a way that they're built upon success. So we provide small pieces of success. So as they get these larger challenges, they have a foundation of skills to build upon. Um, and that piece of challenge is a significant um, part of the change process, which they're finding, which is really interesting, um, but makes sense to us, right? But it's nice that something that makes sense to us who've been doing adventure in wilderness for all these years is now showing up in the research as being that's a component. That's a key component to, um, to change is that challenge that we provide our clients. And usually it's a kinesthetic, holistic challenge. You're physically, emotionally, um, your thoughts are challenged. You know, it's a complete holistic challenge. Um, your body, you know, we talk about the ABCs or the ABBs and Cs of adventure and wilderness, the affect, the behavior, um, and the cognition, but also the body piece, right? Those four pieces, because um, what are you feeling? You know, what are you thinking? Um, how are you acting? But also, you know, what is the body experiencing? And I think that challenge when we engage those four pieces is, is proving to, to be psychologically um, healing. The other, the other exciting factor is that not so much, well, along with the change that's happening in the client, how the role of the therapist is changing. You're changing the role of therapist from being passion, passive and stationary to being active and mobile. And that they, they're really, change does no longer come through the therapist as the central vehicle for functional change. It's the experience that takes, takes on that central medium for orchestrating change. And that frees the therapists up to be much more mobile. They can be in a supportive role, a confronting role, a joining role. With clear and appropriate boundaries, they, have, they are much more approachable and they achieve greater client interaction. So if you're sitting in your crazy creek or just in a chair, you got to get out of that chair. And you got to utilize the strengths that the experiential therapies can have and how that will aid in your therapeutic approach to help the client. That's what you said. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think that, <clears throat> God, there's so many different ways to do it, right? That's why, like, the word I think of is dynamic. It's, it's just a, dy a dynamic intervention. There's so many ways to approach it. And Anita, kind of going back to what you were just saying about that challenge, you know, that challenge to skill ratio and what you were just talking about, I kind of want to geek out on flow, which is, I, I actually just presented on it with Derek yeah. Goals at the last sure. conference, but they you're engaging your body, you're challenging yourself just enough and good, you know, when this is done right, according to what you guys are saying, right, we sequence and we show them how to pop up on a surfboard on the, on the, on the sand, right? And then yeah. we show them how to paddle out and we push them into waves <laughs> and that that's key to success versus saying, here's a board, paddle out, good luck. And they walk in just going like, well, that sucked, right? That didn't work. And what, what, what's the point in all of this? And, um, well, that goes, so into, definitely. that goes into you. I mean, you know, there's the words of distress and eustress and distress is what everyone understands as being distressive and eustress is the positive use of stress and stress always gets a bad, stress always gets a bad rap. But, you know, when we stretch ourselves, that's where we're learning. 
Um, and so adventure kind of likes to really put money on that idea of you stress. It doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to break a client. Like we're not here to break clients. We're not here to break them down and then build them back up, which is some of the boot camp models. That's not our intention. The intention is to right. build them up and see what, you know, there's no breaking. They, they're probably already broken. They, they've been told enough how broken they are. We don't need to tell them anymore. You know what I mean? That's not our job. Our job totally. is to Yeah, yeah, I agree. You no, know, it's to show them what their strengths are. And then, you know what they're doing? It's just not working. They're not getting, what are your goals in life? Guess what? What you're doing right now doesn't seem to be working. If it was, you wouldn't end up here. So how can we look at what you're doing and just tweak it, right? That's the whole nice about adventure experiences. If you just did this instead of that, I'm noticing this, but you know, what would, ha- what would have happened if you did that? And then you leave that, you leave that idea on a client's brain. You don't tell them they have to do it. And you wonder if maybe they implement it. And then they implement it and they go, wow, you know, I thought about it. I tried it on and it worked interesting you're like oh interesting and that you know that subtlety of 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 guiding the process and not doing it for them because really in wilderness and adventure work the clients are doing the work um because they're the ones that have to do the change right and uh and you give them the the safe environment i mean i'm a social worker so i'm all about providing an environment that's conducive to change so they have to you know they have to not not build and the optimal, optimal environment for change. And we have to attend to that first, right? And if they're not, if they're not, if they can't, if there's too many distractions. Tony calls them squigglies. Like, you know, we need squigglies. You have to attend to those squigglies or those things that show up like a huge thunderstorm or a lightning storm. And there's nothing you can do about that. So you have to attend and get safe. You're not going to do good therapy if everyone's in thunder drill or lightning drill, right? It doesn't happen because that's attending to the environment. And then when everyone feels more safe, then we can talk about change or, you know, those sorts of ideas that, and that's just takes so much skill. I think the other thing that people misunderstand about wilderness is not everyone can do it. I mean, it it is, you have to be cross-trained. It is a lot of, it's a lot of balls you're juggling. You have to be a very, very good juggler. Maybe we're not, maybe we don't take a magic pill, but we have to be a little bit magical in our juggling and our, ability to to be magic in that in that balancing of all these needs of the physical and the emotional and you know there is a, a, a there is a perceived sense of risk not a real sense of risk but a perceived sense of risk and we have to attend to that and it's just it's you know as i'm teaching students i'm trying to explain to them that you know you're always attending to everything like everything's information and you know you never really can like sit back you're always kind of taking in what's going on as information to where you're going next. Um, and you really don't know where you're going to go next until you figure out where you're going to end with what's going on currently. And that's the beautiful thing about wilderness is it's, we call it non-deliberative. Like you've set up the environment, but you really don't know what's going to happen with those kids once you set up the environment and you're going to follow their process wherever they go. You're hoping they go one way, but maybe they don't. And then you adapt and you address that. And so again, yeah, yeah that dynam- it's dynamic for sure. It, and it's, you know, that's the beauty of nature. And when I, when I went to my very first wilderness symposium, I sat on a panel with all of the, you know, loosely termed founders of wilderness and adventure therapy. And one guy spoke, I can't remember his name, but he said, you cannot negotiate with nature. Nope. You can't manipulate it. You cannot control it. And that neutralizes behavior, right? Like, and, and Mike used this example earlier. You don't set up your tarp right, you cut that 
corner, you try to manipulate the situation and you're getting wet if it rains. And in Costa Rica, it rains every day. <laughs> so, you know, where I'm at. So like, um, and I, I just, I, I, I love that concept and how it works. And, you know, talking about, um, you know, getting out of your head, right. And engaging the body and all of those things, um, you know, our creativity spikes when we engage the body and, and all things. And I, sorry, I'm rambling cause I get excited about this, but to my, my point is, is that there's so much happening here as you were saying, Anita. And I think that's a good segue into the cost. This is, a, this is unfortunately an expensive intervention. And it is because of all those dynamics that need to be managed, right? Safety and flexibility and nature and, and all of these things, it's, it's, a, it's costly. And that's coming full circle back to what you do, and that is, is gather research so that insurance will start paying for it, so we can start getting more government funding so that more people can have access to this rather than just being a private field for for now and we're getting some refunds and we're starting to make some progress there but that's really what OBH council that's our big push right now is let's all gather the research and let's let's get some let's get reimbursement so more people can access this care and and so the the the, the golden question is is does it does it work long term can you guys going back to the airplane metaphor we're sitting on an airplane talking to a stranger Okay, that sounds awesome. I'm sure it works, but what happens six months and a year later? We're working on those type of processes and research projects. One is go back to your cost-benefit analyses. These are that's research that I'm doing right now, and in many of the cases, for the adolescents not going on wilderness, it's costing their community eighty to one hundred twenty thousand dollars to care for this adolescent when their um, dysfunctions aren't treated. So that is at the upper end of many of the wilderness and other types of NATSAP programs matches that level. The um, long-term effects- What is that, Mike? Can you tell me what that plays out? So, sorry, Mike, can you say, like, can you give us an example of how that would play out to 80 to 120? Can you like walk me through, a young person doesn't go to wilderness, or adventure therapy, and they they opt they opt out, and then what that eventually looks like, and the cost to the community. Yeah, I I can give you the exact answer in two minutes, but I can give you, the, and I'll come to that. I'll and uh, but one of the things is to think about if this person has a psychotic episode in their um, community the pressure of the police, the emergency um, personnel that are required to get this person to short-term treatment, and then the follow-up for long-term treatment, and then the schooling of this individual in specialized schools. So all of these small, small and maybe not so small expenses add up and can create uh, expensive endeavors. Gotcha. That helps a lot. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, think of ER visits, suicide visits, cutting, um, destructive behavior, destruction, you know, when kids are acting out, destruction to their community. Um, if they end up in juvenile processes or even 
actually in juvenile detention, like all those sorts of things if they get untreated, right? We know that there's a huge, um, huge, and I don't want to say the number because I'm wrong. I don't, I don't want to, I don't quote, I can't quote it, but um, the overlap in terms of folks who are locked up who have significant mental illness and that we know that if it's not treated in adolescence that mental illness develops um, into young adulthood um, and increases your risk for, um, for all kinds of, of, of things, including um, incarceration. So, um, and substance abuse is one of the, the largest factors in that. And, uh, you know, when the kids who come to our programs, um, most of them have substance, maybe they're not complete addicts, but they have substance issues. Um, and then some programs like Legacy focus specifically on kids who that's their, their main, one of the many, but their main reason for coming to treatment. So I, um, but we have to do a better job. The other thing is we just, um, yes, it lasts. Um, we just did a uh, control group study that had youth who stayed in their community and youth um, who went to wilderness and looked at their outcomes one year post when, um, so it's like 15 months later. So if you think about it, um, Clients, parents uh, call in, they're interested for their youth to go to wilderness. Some end up going, some don't. Um, those kids go, they're there about three months, then a year after that, or 15 months later, for those who ended up not going, were contacted to look at you know, how they're doing, what's going on. Um, and the kids who uh, went to wilderness are doing uh, significantly better. Um, they're in normative level of functioning. Um, the kids in the community, they're not. Um, they're way acute. Um, they're very challenging. They have a variety of different interactions with inpatient as well as outpatient care, um, but not a lot of care. Um, and so it's, it's really, it's, it's the first time we've really been able to dig our feet in and say, um, we have a comparison group of folks who went and folks who didn't. Um, and the wilderness folks just, they do better. They just do better. And it's just really nice because I, as a researcher, I feel like that's one of our largest critiques, and I agree with them. I wholeheartedly agree with them. But um, having a randomized trial, so for those of you who aren't really in the psychological literature or kind of in, or methodologists, there's this idea that you take a group of kids who are all sick, you roll a die, and one group get to go to this care, and one group get to go to that care. I'm not sure we'll ever be able to do that in wilderness. That's not how it works. Um, but the next best thing is to have a comparison group that is comparable um, functioning the same level that the kids that we compared them at at that time one and they were the same kind of kid same age same level of dysfunction only thing is different is one group went to treatment and the other one didn't um, and then we followed them and that's as good as we're gonna get and it's really exciting um, ethically it's really hard to do randomization um, they do it in medical for prescription drugs a lot but in terms of Folks that are that acute and in that need of treatment, we can't say, oh, well, wait a second, you know, we're going to send you here instead. Um, people want treatment and, and parents would never sign up for that anyway. So it's really exciting. I mean, that's like our biggest exciting news and research in the past four months for sure. Yeah. Can I say well done? And it is exciting. I'm looking at it right now on my computer. It's pretty much been on the background of my computer since it came out. And I'm talking about it all the time. It is awesome. <laughs> and, and, uh, and yeah, and it's, it, it gives us something to talk about. And there, 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 there's, yeah, we've, we've got some more to do. It's exciting with the golden thread to see maybe there's an opportunity to enhance this comparison group study and we'll see what happens from that. But, uh, you know, we've been including that in some of the presentations we've been doing and, and, 
and well, the, I'm in, will the audience know what the golden thread is? Uh, we've been educating them on that when on the when I got to hang out with Andrew's wife yesterday, and she came to our presentation. Brett was there, and we presented the regional and talked about some of this stuff, and and brought some people up to speed on what that is and how it works. And I'm excited that you know that's a that's somewhere where like for this comparison group and great job to Demille and Anita and the people who put the work into this for years for this to happen that maybe the next go around with this we can collect some of that comparison group and get those guys in the database that makes it a little bit easier and at a larger scale yeah for um, sure for sure and that's and that's the thing is like so so it's research informed practice and practice informed research which is kind of a social work model but really it should be the best model of practice ever is what do we see going on in the field that you all really think we should research and it may be feasible or it may be not but it's but for those people who have boots on the ground for us sometimes you know i don't do as much practice as i'd like so i'm a little removed it's great to hear what's going on and what you're interested in and then we have research that we say hey you know this isn't working or you need to pay attention to this you know these may not be best practices um and then practitioners go oh you know the research says this we should be thinking about implementing this differently um, because what we're doing isn't backed up by research and so it really is um it really is just a feedback loop on both ends which really i believe is is the way the field needs to be moving and without it i don't think anyone would have the resources to do the amount of research um that that we've done and i i really do have kudos um to the outdoor behavioral Healthcare council as an organization there's many wilderness programs but these individuals realize that the field itself, they were responsible to the field, not to each other, not to OBH per se, but to the larger field of wilderness, that um, we need to do good work and we need to help clients. And one of the ways of doing that is making sure we're researching what we do. And so for them to put their money where their mouth is and fund research in a way that they can't control what we do, when we do it, or where we publish it, but just have faith and they know what they do works they're confident in their product um, and then they kind of provide resources you know that's one of many ways that the center is funded but the fact that they they know that um, and provide those resources is I think it's progressive and it's, it's it's really amazing I wish there were more programs who had you know the ability to put money aside to be able to be able to focus squarely on research so that's real quick progressive. one of the things one of the things I've been talking with like Petrie about on the research, and I think we're seeing this and, and Anita, I think you're speaking to this a little bit is, is look, we're gathering all this research, but one of the indicators that as an industry we're using this and we're being effective is if, if, if people come, if people come from the outside and start to critique and say, we should be able to answer the question both as an industry and as individual programs, how has the research you're collecting impacted or changed what you're doing with the clients? And if the answer is not at all, we're probably not doing a very good with a good with our research, right? Like it should be informing and changing. And like you said, like when we have this feedback loop where we're studying and we're putting it out there, then we can learn and we can adjust. And I can think of specific things going back the last decade where I can say, hey, you know, we've changed and we've shifted what we're doing. And and for example, one of the things that's just a big right now is you're seeing across of many of the wilderness program, people implementing progress monitoring where we're collecting this stuff uh, on a more consistent, it used to be pre and post, right? Mm -hmm. Or pre at, at intake and at discharge. And now we're seeing this more and then that informs the clinical practice. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exciting, you know? So 
uh, yeah, there's a quote I love is that, we're, that we've been using as a, as a uh, you know, you don't want to use research like a drunken man uses a lamp lamppost. In other words, we can't, our motivation can't be just to collect research to say, see, we were right. We knew it worked. You know, it has to be uh, what doesn't and what can we learn and how can we improve? And, uh, you know, we're coming from, I mean, we, we are all passionate and believe, I mean, we're talking about wilderness and nature. There's something inherent like water that is healthy. But like Mike said, and he was talking to, what is the best way? And it's more than just let's go for a walk in the woods, uh, particularly with the dysfunction and what we're dealing with with our clients, right? Yeah, they just tell you to F off. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. So um, I think the last question I want to ask as we kind of wrap up here is where, where do you guys see us in 20 years from now? Yeah, and so one of the things I tell our students is, when you are 10 to, 10 to 20 years from now, you're going to be doing things different than we're doing right now. It's going to be better. It's going to be more research informed. It's going to be more effective. So mm. teaching our growing professionals to become learners as well as knowers is incredibly important. But what I see, see happening, hope happening, is that outdoor behavioral health care becomes specific enough and understanding how it is utilized so it can be assigned for kids with certain diagnoses. And I think one of those is a lot of times um, uh, the complexity of issues is I think one of the things that wilderness does well. Um, most of the people in the research database for NATSAP have at least two if not three presenting issues. They're, these are complex kids that don't wake up one day and say, I think I'm gonna be dysfunctional today. I think I'll do unhealthy behaviors. It's a well-orchestrated systemic issue that needs something like wilderness to um, make effective lasting change. So I think there'll be more definitive use of wilderness and outdoor behavioral health care and we'll be doing things better than we're doing now. Anita, your thoughts? I don't know where we'll be. I know where I hope we'll be. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> My professional hope is that that just across all disciplines, whether that's social work, psychology, marriage and family therapy, um, clinical psych, um, licensed mental health counselors, that there's that there's a growing understanding for the need to, as Derek says, to get out of get out get out of the chair and get off the couch. This experiential, holistic engagement of clients. Um, in a world where we're more sedentary than ever, we're more focused on electronics than ever. Um, and so that can be in community-based practice, that can be in acute care and inpatient and, and in residential treatment. I just feel like that, I'm hoping that, um, you know, one of the big, in, in our field right now in social work and in mental health in general, you know, integrative health, um, integrated health care right now is a huge push to the federal government, integrative behavioral health care, where you walk into a medical office and you'll have your behavioral health specialist will be in and out as well as the doctor. And it's just a well-oiled machine that mental health is, is as key a factor as physical health. And I think that's what we do really well in wilderness is this idea that we engage the body in getting healthier as well as the mind. Mm. I'm hoping that there's a larger acceptance because if, as this idea of integrative health grows in this nation, um, behavioral health is like almost a perfect uh, segue or a fit for that model 
um, and it's growing and, and the money's there. We're doing behavioral health and integrative health placements. We just got a good HRSA, a huge HRSA grant, which is for training folks in behavioral health from the Department of Health and Human Services from the federal government here at UNH. And um, it's just a perfect fit, right? It's a perfect fit for us. So I'm hoping that um, as it becomes, as we become less of a medical model of treating and more of an integrated model of treating, there's a, you know, we are not adjunctive, we're primary, we're a primary line of, of care, um, whether it's in a community or more in a wilderness setting, doing, uh, doing active stuff. Because um, that's where I believe the change, not for everybody, right? It's not for everybody. And that's important too. But, but I, but I think it, it's hard to say it's, you can't adapt it for most people. Um, totally biased opinion, I know, but um, I've seen it work for a variety of, of really, really challenging kids, kids that I never thought I could reach who I bring hiking for three days and can't believe where they were a year ago and go, wow, if I tried to talk him through this, this would ne we'd never be where we're at. Um, so that's my hope. Um, yeah. If you have a dream, you got to just dream it for it to come true. So. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Anthony, Derek. Can yeah, I, I just, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to point out that, that Derek just came from Washington D.C. He was in a, the National Dialogue for Healthcare Innovations. He sat on a panel discussion about this very thing. And what? Yeah, I was definitely going to ask you for your closing thoughts as well with respect yeah. to that. Yeah. So yeah. So man. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I I see us OBH the council Andrew and and us here and and as as a tip of the spear and then this OBH center and Mike Gass and the researchers who I so appreciate and I'm so grateful for all the work and I consider myself lucky that I get to to, to get to have conversations with the, the the folks who are paving the way. But I do see these conversations and us and the council and the center as the tip of the spear is pushing uh, OBH and what we do forward. And I think 20 years from now, I'll say this, I think it's a spectrum, right? And I know I have an agenda and that agenda is, yeah, I want to take it into to DC and educate the healthcare so that Ultimately, outdoor behavioral health care or wilderness therapy is a household name where the misconceptions and some of the fears and some of the things that we certainly know are not true are no longer battles that we're fighting. And instead, middle class homes and families and people are seeking these things out. And I'll say returning to nature and returning to things both as a treatment and a prevention you know beyond just what we're doing in our programs i'm thinking about my own family and my own children and i think some of the disconnections and the problems and the things in society and for me firsthand you know uh I know how I've experienced wilderness uh, and how it's impacted me. And I want to see, I want to seek to harness and to share that with as many people as possible. Uh, and I'm seeing a culture in a community that's starting to open up to that. And I think with Mike, people like Mike and Anita and the other researchers who are, are awesome, they're going to help us make the case and open that even further. So I think 20 years, I'm hoping five years, but I'll take 20 where, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're really looking to this both as a prevention and a treatment. And yeah, and, 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 and we're having those conversations. DC, I, you know, in preparation for going out there, I reached out to all the researchers and said, hey, help me, you know, prepare for this and use that seat, like of representing the OBH Council. And this was a group of people who they were excited to hear and they found it refreshing to hear a new perspective. And it's, 
interesting to me that wilderness and, and, and wilderness therapy and OBH is innovative ideas, right? But people are opening up to these. And I think there's a little less resistance than there was just, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago. And I don't know if Mike and Anita seeing that same thing, but that's, that's what I'm experiencing. It's encouraging. Yeah. It's, it's exciting times guys. And I, I've really enjoyed my first year on the OBH council. And when we, when we joined, you know, Drew Hornpeg came up to me after the first meeting and he, he was asking me how I, how I liked it and everything. And I he said, you know, it's kind of fun to look around the room and think that, that, that we're on the front end of something really exciting, you know, and even though there are pioneers who have gone before us, um, you know, we're, we're really in a fun situation where I think in the next 10, 20 years, maybe we'll all go back and listen to this podcast and, and laugh about <laughs> a laugh about where we were and how, how far we've come. Right. And I, that's not to, to take away from where we're at. I'm really proud of where we're at and just hearing, knowing that, you know, we're safer, the, the young people in our programs are safer in our programs than they are at home. I take a lot of pride in that. I share that a lot with people who are asking me or who are looking into our program and um, we're making a real difference here. And I thank Mike and Anita. Thank you. Thanks for all your hard work. Thank you for your passion for what we're doing. And um, you know, Derek, Derek and I are, we just feel really lucky to be a part of this in, in every way. And thank you for your time today. I think yeah. that uh, I think we've just hit the tip of the iceberg. We could probably talk another couple of hours if uh, if we all had time, but maybe that's for another day. Sure. I, I just want to give a plug too, real quick. Like Andrew, that's always fun talk, and I enjoy these conversations. I look forward to many more. And 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 I want to encourage people. I should have said this at the beginning too. Join the movement. When you find stuff and you find people who support what we're doing, share it. You know, tag Andrew, tag me, uh, get people off the couch. You just, you just use the hashtag. And I want to acknowledge Mike and Anita and the, the taking the research and turn it into a narrative. Uh, and, and I want to point people, if you're interested in more, go to the OBH Center website, uh, check out the videos, and I suspect there'll be more to come. And I, uh, uh, so I just encourage people to go there and check those things out. And yeah, double, be double thanks to all the all the programs participating in the OBH Council, we couldn't do any of this if it wasn't for you all. So we're very blessed and thankful for all your efforts.